You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It says here, Sinclair received his PhD from University of Aberdeen and was a minister in the Church of Scotland from 71 to 2005. During that time, he worked as minister of St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow. He later transferred to the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States and, and served as the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, until his recent retirement. He has served as an editor of the Banner of Truth Trust. He is also a professor of systematic theology at Redeemer Seminary in Dallas, Texas, and part-time professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he previously held the Charles Crahey Chair for Systematic Theology. He is also the author of close on 30 books and numerous articles. He's married to Dorothy, has four children, David, Peter, John, and of course our own Ruth Murdoch. Uh, Sinclair is going to be preaching here over a period of time, in the evenings normally on a Sunday, and uh, so we're really glad that he's come. Um, a man from our own nation and from uh, our own place, and really enjoyed hearing his accent this morning as he came in, even from the States, he's never lost it. So we thank you. Sinclair, would you come? and share God's word with us now. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Hugh. Actually, I was beginning to wonder if this congregation was half American by the <laughs> people who are taking part in the service, so it's, uh, it's somewhat of a relief to hear the Queen's English spoken as it ought to be, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled really now to be preaching to people who will actually understand every word I utter, <laughs> except the visiting Americans who, of course, will uh, have to put up with the foreign accent. I'm very grateful to Hugh for his welcome. I know it sounded a little more like an obituary notice, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's actually lovely to hear those obituary notices uh, in, in the Scottish tongue because I've become somewhat used to hearing them. Uh, in a foreign accent. And I uh, want to uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, those of you who know David Robertson well know that he is a super organized person and uh, therefore would have given me very clear and direct instructions, which would have included the Bible version that you use here. And so, by way of apology, I'm going to read to you from the English Standard Version, uh, which is the Bible I customarily use, and uh, hereafter, by God's grace, I will repent and I'll read to you from the, the New International Version. Um, and uh, so, I don't know the page number, but John's Gospel is the fourth gospel. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the fourth gospel in the New Testament part, and about halfway through the fourth gospel, we come to John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? wanted to read and study this passage with you this morning because in the coming months, God willing, I want us in the evening services in which I'm responsible to preach to you, to study together in this whole section in John's Gospel, particularly chapters 13 and through chapter 17, often described by students of the Bible as Jesus' farewell discourse, or obviously because of the location, the upper room discourse or sermon. There may be other passages in Scripture that reach greater heights of eloquence. Doubtless Romans chapter 8, with which you're familiar, does that. And there are also passages that I think touch our emotions more deeply than these verses do. For example, the descriptions in the first three Gospels of Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there is, I think, no portion in Scripture that brings us nearer to the heart of the Lord Jesus than these hours that He spends with His disciples teaching them on the evening of His betrayal and His coming crucifixion. It is, at least in my judgment, a section of Scripture that brings us both to the depths of Jesus' love for His people and also to the heights of the grace and glory to which He is leading them. To give just one illustration, it's actually in these verses more than anywhere else in the Scriptures that we find the deepest teaching about the character of God as the Trinity. 
He speaks to us about bringing us to the Father. He speaks to us about sending to us the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to understand and grow in what it means to have communion with the Lord, there is a sense in which we ought to have at least a working knowledge of these chapters in the New Testament. They underscore, I think, a comment that John Calvin makes at the beginning of his commentary on John's Gospel. He says, when you compare the first three Gospels with John's Gospel, you can put it like this. They show us Christ's body. John shows us Christ's soul. And that's, of course, what emerges here in these chapters. John's Gospel, as you probably know, can be divided roughly into two sections. The first 12 chapters that are sometimes described as the book of the signs, in which Jesus does a variety of signs and then he explains their significance. And then from the end of chapter 12 right through to the end of the Gospel, what is sometimes called the book of glory. In the first section, Jesus did many signs in order to reveal his glory, but his glory was rejected. In the second half of the gospel, as we are told at the end of chapter 12, Jesus withdraws from the community, and he does no signs except this first sign of washing the disciples' feet. But as he does so, he reveals to these disciples whom he has nurtured, who are going to grow in trust and love for him, he reveals his glory to them. So that as John had said at the beginning of the gospel, we are the ones, we who have come to believe in him, we are the ones who beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. And so in that context, I think it's very striking that in the vestibule to this section, in the entryway, the first thing that we're told Jesus does is fetch a basin of water, take off his outer garment, put on the towel that the slave would ordinarily wear, and then in this extraordinary fashion, bow down, kneel down, before each one of the twelve disciples. And I think it's significant just to underline that he kneels down before each of the twelve disciples, not just the eleven disciples, but he kneels down before the twelve disciples. We reach verse 30 in this passage before Judas leaves the room and he washes each of their dirty feet. We're inclined to think because of the prominence that's given here to Simon Peter that it was a wonderful thing that Jesus washed the dirty feet of Simon Peter. But you know, there is a rather arresting reality here, that Jesus also washed the dirty feet of Judas Iscariot, into whose heart Satan had put it to betray and to seek to destroy him. 
And so if ever there was a place in which we are drawn into the heart of the Lord Jesus for sinners, it must surely be in this occasion in the upper room. And I want us this morning to notice several things about what Jesus is doing. The first is this. You'll notice in these verses that Jesus possesses a deep sense of occasion. Some people don't have that. You know, people who wander through life and they treat every incident, every event as though that were the same. And others whose emotions and mindset seems to be perfectly adjusted to every single situation. They feel appropriately. They're also able to speak appropriately. They are, they are in tune with the reality that is taking place. And you find this here. Uh, the disciples, uh, suppose from one point of view, all they see is this somewhat embarrassing situation in which Jesus washes their dirty feet because they are, relatively speaking, sinful men who are insensitive to what is actually going on. But Jesus is deeply sensitive to what is going on, and He is profoundly conscious of what He is doing. And so John, who, who takes us into Jesus' self-consciousness, unusual thing in the Scriptures, isn't it? Usually Jesus is described in the Bible from outside, from spectators looking on. But here Jesus is described from the inside as to what He was thinking. And you'll notice the words. What was in Jesus' mind was that He knew the time had come to leave the world, and He knew He was going to the Father. So He knew what He was doing and why He was there, and He was also profoundly conscious of who He was. Look at the words, for example, that are used in verse 3. Jesus did this knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, that He had come from God and He was going to God. Actually, what's striking here is the parallel between the way the first half of the gospel opens and the way the second half of the gospel opens, isn't it? The first half of the gospel opens, in the beginning was the Word, the Lord Jesus. And the Word was with God. The Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God. And now that we are here in the upper room with Jesus, Jesus is deeply conscious of His own identity. This is who He is. He is the one who from all eternity lived in face-to-face -face fellowship with God, was Himself God, had come into the world from the Father, and was now going to return from the world to the Father. And it's precisely within that sense of profound consciousness, awareness of who He is, that He stoops down to wash the dirty feet of the disciples. 
And you see how this is expressed, I think perhaps in some of the most beautiful words in John's gospel. The end of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The one who is described here as in the beginning with God is the one who has come to love his own to the very end. I guess we moderns might have said it. I don't think the New International Version went this far. He loved them to the max. He loved them to the end in the sense that he was going to die for them. And he would love them to the end, that is to say, no matter how far down they fell. And in this context, they were falling down very far. Luke tells us in his gospel, they were squabbling with one another about who was greater and who was lesser. And he stoops down in his grace to show that he will love them to the very end. I find it interesting in John's gospel that John, the author, describes himself, as you probably know, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he's often referred to that way, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And usually, to be honest with you, I should tell you, usually that's interpreted as John saying, I am the disciple whom Jesus especially loved. In distinction from all the other disciples, there was a special relationship between Jesus and John, and, and that may be true, but I don't think that's the reason why John describes himself this way. Indeed, I rather suspect it would be out of keeping with John's personality to describe himself in this way, saying, look at me. I am the disciple whom Jesus especially loved. There would be, there would be something quite unfitting about that. What I think he means when he says this is what every disciple may say. I too am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what John is saying, and it's interesting, it's in this context he begins to say it, is that it at last dawned on him what it meant to be Jesus' disciple, that Jesus loved him like this that he came down from the glory into the shame, washed the disciples' feet because of the sheer intensity of his love for them. It's one of the wonders of becoming a Christian, isn't it, for, for many of us. Never forgotten meeting a, a woman at a conference in the United States, and she began to speak to me, and uh, another speaker with whom I was, and she told us the story of her conversion, well, a life of, of sorrow and grief, uh, very uncomfortable, unhappy, and uh, severe relationship with father, and then, as often happens, with husband. And then Christ found her, and she found Christ. And she said these simple but very memorable words. She said, I realized for the first time in my life, 
that I was really loved. And that's the setting for this marvelous narrative of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. If anything, it's made even more wonderful by the fact that Jesus realized what none of the 11 disciples realized, that there was somebody in the room who was bent, we might even say hell-bent, on destroying him. It was when Satan had already filled Judas's heart that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples the marvels of his love. So, Jesus possesses a deep sense of the occasion in these opening three verses. The second thing that you'll notice in the rest of this passage is that what Jesus now wants to do is to give them a picture of what he's going to do for their salvation. He has a sense of the occasion, and now he wants to demonstrate to them, to to picture for them what he has done to bring them salvation. Now, of course, this is a real event. Jesus really did get up from supper, get the basin, take off his outer garments, put on the slave's towel, kneel down before them, and wash their feet. But it's clear, isn't it, in the passage that it wasn't just an action. It was a sign. That's why later on in the passage you'll notice that he says to them, for example, in uh, verse 7, he says to Peter, what I'm doing you don't understand. Well, surely it's not difficult to understand. He's washing their dirty feet. That's what he's doing. But he's saying, if that's all you see, then in a sense you've missed the point of what I'm doing. And later on, again in verse 12, he says to them, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? It's one thing for me to wash your feet. It's another thing for you to understand what I have done. Well, what do you think they saw? I think they saw that he washed their dirty feet. I think they saw that actually he had embarrassed them profoundly. I'm reminded of a setting, a, a wedding reception. I was at one of my oldest standing friends sitting beside me, and one of the waitresses with a tray of stuff stumbled, and all the stuff went clattering on the floor just a few yards from me. And I turned to him, tells you something about a man and tells you something about this man. I said, somebody should help her. And he turned to me, and he said, yes, somebody should help her. And uh, out of the embarrassment of my carelessness, of course I turned to help her. And maybe that's all they saw. Here we are squabbling about who's first, and it's our master who comes and makes himself least. And, and washes our feet. Don't you think there must have been a... What imagine the atmosphere in the room must have been like? I mean, I'm sure nobody said a word. 
But if that was all they saw, if all they saw was their own embarrassment, then Jesus is saying, and it seems that's what they did, Jesus is saying, don't you understand what I've done here? Don't you see that I'm giving you a, a little picture here, my last sign to help you to grasp what I've come into the world to do. Now, we are at an advantage over the disciples because the disciples didn't have John's gospel, but we have John's gospel. And if we'd been reading through John's gospel to this point, we would have noticed how just at the end of chapter 12, when Jesus withdraws from the world, John says, we have got to see in what is happening here the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Now, if you're my generation, you probably learned this either in Sunday school or in primary school. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The passage that goes on to speak about the servant of the Lord who suffers, is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, upon whom the chastisement of the Lord that brings us peace falls, and through his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Actually, that passage begins at the end of Isaiah 52 and goes right through to the end of chapter 53. It begins with the exaltation of this servant of the Lord and then mysteriously brings us down to the humiliation and suffering of the Lord for the sins of others and then ends with the exaltation of the Lord. And if we'd been reading through John's gospel, I think we would we'd be able to look at this passage through John's lenses, as though, as though with the disciples all we saw was an embarrassing situation, and John said, try these. And we put them on, and we saw that the frame in which this whole passage is set by John is the fulfillment of this prophecy in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus has come to be the servant of the disciples, but it's not just any servant. It's this particular servant, the servant of the Lord who has come to take away the sins of his people. And as he speaks to Peter, he, he begins to make that clear, doesn't he? Peter says to him, you don't need to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you have no idea how important it is that I wash your feet. How important it is that you have part in what I do, that you have a share in the saving grace that I've come to bring. And it's a little picture it, it's both a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, and it's a, it's a little picture that should help them to understand what is about to happen within the next 24 hours. That this coming down to wash the feet of the disciples, and then this returning to the head of the table, is a picture of 
how Jesus has come down and is going to love them to the end. That is, to the end of his own life, given up as a sacrifice in the death of the cross before he ascends in majesty and power to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And so he not only has this marvelous sense of occasion, but in this amazing way, he gives them this little picture of what he is going to do for their salvation. Washing their dirty feet is a sign of the way in which the shedding of his sacrificial blood will bring cleansing and pardon to those who trust him. And John, later on in his letters, he he picks this up. He tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, do you know this verse? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Jesus comes with this sense of occasion. He gives them this marvelous picture of what He is going to do for their salvation. And then thirdly, and this is so Jesus-like, He engages in giving them important instruction. That's why He asks the question, do you understand what I'm doing here? And this is where the the passage begins to focus on Jesus' conversation with Simon Peter, and there's this interchange. There's a a question that Peter asks, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus provides him with a clarification, and then there's Peter's response again. He still doesn't get it, and Jesus provides him with a further explanation. And then Peter makes a request, well, if that's the case, wash my whole body. And Jesus says to him, you still don't understand, Peter. And he provides him with this correction. Now, what's Peter's problem? Well, it's twofold, isn't it? First of all, his heart is not yet fully submissive to the Lord. His heart is not yet fully submissive to the Lord. He is the Lord's. Jesus makes that clear. You're you're clean. We don't have to begin with your whole body here, Peter. You are clean. But Peter, there are are still areas of your life where I need to work very deeply, and in your case it may well be rather painfully, because your heart is not fully submissive to me. And and he makes this clear, doesn't he? Jesus comes, going to wash his feet. You will never wash my feet. Now again, John's doing, I think, a very interesting thing here. He's told us that Jesus loves Peter to the end. Jesus loves Peter to the everlasting. But Peter is saying to him, to the everlasting, you will never, ever wash my feet. Literally, he says, to the age, to the, to the end of the age, this is never going to happen. 
And you see what Jesus has done. He is the same today as he was yesterday. He's begun to press on those areas of Peter's life where he thought everything was in order and uh, some of the poison has begun to come out. There are latent areas of resistance. There are some things in Peter's life about which he is prepared to say to Jesus, all these other things, but there, never. There is a keep out Jesus sign because his heart is not yet fully submissive. I think it's interesting that Jesus is dealing with him here by giving him a sign of what he's going to do on the cross because uh, it was in that context that Peter's rebellion was actually ultimately broken. He needed much repair. But you remember when he had denied the Lord Jesus three times, and just as he did so, he looked across the courtyard, and he saw Jesus was looking at him, and the Gospels tell us he went out, and, and he wept bitterly. I think he probably emptied his soul of that latent resistance to the Lord Jesus. But the, th- the thing is, he didn't understand that that's what Jesus was doing. As Jesus pressed in upon him, uh, all, the, all the doors went up, the keep out Jesus doors, not that area of my life. And he didn't understand that Jesus was really pouring out blessing on him. But it wasn't just that his heart was not yet fully submissive, his, his mind was not yet fully enlightened. And uh, this is wonderfully clear here, isn't it? He doesn't yet understand after Jesus keeps on making it clear to him. He's a bit like Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3 when Jesus says, you know, unless you're born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, I don't see that. I don't see that. He doesn't even see the very thing that Jesus tells him he's not seeing. And Jesus keeps explaining to him what he's doing, and, and Peter, Peter can't grasp it. And we understand this. We, we see the truth of the gospel, and, and somehow or another we don't grasp it or are grasped by it. And so Jesus says to him these, I think, remarkably significant words in verse 7. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Actually, later on in his first letter, he, he uses what Jesus did, becoming a servant to others, to say to his fellow believers, this is what I've learned that we are called to be. So, so he did understand. In the narrow sense, he didn't understand all that Jesus was going to do for him on the cross and what he was symbolizing to him in the washing of his feet. But there's also a broader sense, I think, in which these words are true. They're applicable 
to our understanding of the heart of the gospel. They're also applicable, aren't they, to our understanding of the ways of Christ with us in the gospel. Um, If I had a dollar for every member of uh, the congregations I've served that I've pointed to these words in difficult circumstances, I would be quite a rich man. You need to understand, whatever you're going through, that even if you don't understand now what he's doing, afterwards you will understand. He's really saying to Peter, Peter, if I tried to explain this to you, you'd never be able to take it in. But afterwards, as you see what I'm doing and how that brings fruit in your life and the life of others, then you may step back and say, and now I think I'm beginning to understand that although I could never have grasped it then, he has his purposes that will unfold. And so I can learn to trust him even when I have to confess I do not fully understand him. So there's an obvious example of Jesus' instruction in the life of Simon Peter, but there's, there's another less obvious place, isn't there? A less obvious example in the life of Judas Iscariot. Not much is said about him, except we know he was there. We know therefore that since he doesn't go from the room until verse 30, when he has received the morsel of bread that Jesus has given to him, he immediately went out and it was night. And actually suddenly the atmosphere in the room changed. Immediately the atmosphere changed. And there's a lesson here, lesson of the expressions of of love. There's a lesson of Jesus' knowledge that he had and Judas had, but none of the others had, that even as he showered upon him this picture of what he was going to do on the cross, even there as Jesus could have looked up into Judas Iscariot's eyes, I wonder if he did, but Judas Iscariot's heart, even in the face of the gospel, was becoming harder and harder and harder. It's always this way, isn't it? Every time Jesus comes to us in the gospel, every time his word is opened to us, every time we hear his name, every time someone prays in Jesus' name, every time we see a Christian believer who is given entirely to the Lord Jesus, then our hearts go out in soft affection and devotion and thankfulness to Jesus, or secretly, where nobody else has access, nobody else knows, we turn him away, we begin to despise him, and eventually we will betray him. It's a marvelous entry, isn't it? What do you see here? The Lord of glory the suffering servant, the gracious Savior, or a Jesus to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief,
And as Isaiah prophesied, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We despised him and esteemed him not. Well, this is our Jesus. He comes to us in the gospel. He loves us to the end. It's possible for you to be able to say, to leave church today, golly, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved to the end. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in giving your Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he has stooped to conquer our cold and sinful hearts. We pray you would bring us to know him and trust him and love him in fresh ways, and that then we may go on in a cheerful and glad spirit to say to one another, I see there is dirt here. May I have the privilege in Jesus' name of washing your feet. Make us, we pray, servants like our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.